1: Can we talk a little bit about Paul Manafort's week? Like, can he, it's, he's been really busy.
0: <laughs> yes, and prosecutors have been busy too.
1: Jed Sugarman follows all things Mueller investigation for Slate. I wanted to give him a call because Paul Manafort had a rough week. He showed up in court looking pretty frail, gray hair, in a wheelchair. Then he got sentenced to prison for crimes like tax fraud and witness tampering.
0: Manafort did not do what many defendants do do, which is show contrition. And many defendants will write a letter to the court where they get a chance with their lawyers to show what they've learned and and their shame and and their contrition. And it was remarkable that Manafort did not do that. And Judge Jackson made a point to show that that this is not a sufficient showing of remorse.
1: So it's interesting. It's like he's presenting a kind of pitiful facade, but he's not apologizing
0: that's basically right to the extent that there have been apologies it's more of kind of a, a wallowing in self-pity more than actually recognizing the damage done you know, all you really need to know about Manafort is that he had an opportunity he had many opportunities for redemption in the past year um, if he had a conscience
1: You might remember that Paul Manafort originally had a plea deal with Robert Mueller. Then he was caught lying — to the FBI, to the grand jury. And now he's looking at seven and a half years in prison.
0: I think what you see over this pattern is someone who seems to not have a conscience and seems to not understand, um, even to be able to fake remorse.
1: But Jed isn't that interested in Manafort's psychology. He looks at everything that's happening here as a constitutional scholar, He teaches at Fordham University School of Law. For Jed, the details of Manafort's case are worth picking apart because we almost didn't know about them.
0: It's dramatic because of just how long this kind, these set of frauds just kept going and with with impunity. I mean, imagine if Trump had lost. If Trump had actually lost in 2016, would anyone have investigated and would not have been a special counsel? And even though I have to tell you, people have been talking about Manafort's dirty connections to Russian oligarchs and to the Ukrainian oligarchs um, for a long time. And despite these rumors being out there for a long time, it really took Trump winning <laughs> for, for Manafort to get under scrutiny and ultimately be prosecuted.
1: today. With all of us waiting for Robert Mueller's investigation to wrap up, Jed's gonna take us inside the case against Paul Manafort, or cases, actually. There are three of them now, two in federal court, one in state court in Manhattan. Jed says what's happening to Manafort shows how the investigation into the president might just keep rolling on, even if the Mueller report never gets released. I'm Mary Harris, you're listening to What Next. Stay with us. terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before we talk about how the charges against Paul Manafort could play out, we should explain who Paul Manafort is. Jed Sugarman has been following Paul Manafort for years, before this latest scandal landed him in court.
0: He was a name, before he was named campaign manager, um, I'm kind of a political junkie, so I just, I knew his name, but I really didn't know anything about him. And so when he was brought in in March of 2016, it was sort of indicative of maybe how seriously Trump was taking the process.
1: It's interesting because he'd been around Washington a long time. Can you introduce me to who Paul Manafort was around Washington and and how he got involved?
0: Sure. So, you know, Manafort really is a breakthrough in some major Republican Party campaigns in the seventies and eighties and then he makes a shift into building lobbying and the sort of the expert Manfortologist out there is Franklin Foer, who has identified a number of innovations, major you know, political changes in the 80s and 90s, one of which is that Manafort builds a lobbying firm, which doubles as a kind of policy shop and creates a kind of a revolving door in D.C. So to a certain extent, the, some of our modern special interest politics of lobbyists becoming Congress people and becoming lobbyists again is something that Manafort pioneered According to Foer.
1: You're putting your finger on two things, which is first of all, he created this operation where he was advocating for candidates and working in their campaigns. And then when they got elected, he would turn around and lobby them. And so he creates these sort of twisted relationships that are hard to disentangle. Part of what people really criticize about Washington, right?
0: That's right. I mean, I, I think Franklin Foer is right when he identifies Manafort as being one of the founding fathers of of modern Washington. There's always been some degree of, of this corruption. I don't want to overstate it, but Manafort um, builds it and legitimizes it in a way that was significant.
1: And then he kind of takes this show on the road like he starts working not just with people in the u.s government but with saudi arabia with people in angola with people in the ukraine is that right
0: that's right i mean he takes it on the road and he takes it uh, on the jet set he specializes in propping up authoritarians and dictators he becomes basically the torturer's lobbyist. And it turns out when those dictators, like dictators in the Ukraine, are stealing you know, billions of dollars, there's a lot of money to go around for the political operatives who help them get into power and stay in power. So it turns out that he was able to go from making some millions of dollars in America to making multi-millions in supporting these dictators.
1: So he was working with all of these foreign countries, and, you know, making these international deals, how did he get hooked up with the Trump administration?
0: Right. I mean, so I think there's still some conjecture about this, but it's important to note that he he got a lot of attention for working for free for Trump. And initially, people treated that as sort of a public service. But we now know that he went from making millions and millions of dollars from these um, from these Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs to spending it so lavishly that he went into debt and that because he was in debt in order to repay that debt, it seems as if he may have been pushed to take this role to then help Trump get elected and also keep the Russians networked in with the Trump campaign to a certain extent.
1: You can hear Jed hedging a bit here, and that's because we don't really know Paul Manafort's motivations. We just know this all looks really bad. The theory is that if Paul Manafort owed money to some Ukrainians, he could have been beholden to them. So he might agree to work for Trump at their behest.
0: And in return, they would cancel out his debts. So it was really a mix of a carrot and a stick.
1: So he joins as the campaign chairman, but only for a little bit of time, right?
0: Well, no. uh, If you look at the timing, he is effectively campaign chairman longer than anyone else's. Bannon is basically there for two and a half months in a high-profile time of, you know, September and October. But Manafort's timing is effectively, it starts around March. So that's like four months. We can't overlook how it was not an obvious done deal that Trump would get the nomination from the convention, given that he basically ran against the Republican Party uh, establishment to win. So Manafort was key in being able to basically signal to the Republican Party establishment Trump was bringing in Manafort, this, this old Republican insider, and that in many ways settled some anxieties of the, of the Republican establishment, that Trump was not going to overturn so many tables and be a bull in a china shop.
1: But that was then, and this is now. Manafort went from being the man behind the curtain to a main target of an investigation into Trump's election. Over the last week, Paul Manafort has been sentenced in two federal cases — And just minutes after his most recent court appearance, he was brought up on new charges, this time by the Manhattan district attorney. It seems a little odd, right, that Manafort is being charged in so many different places? Jed says this is a coordinated strategy on the part of different prosecutors. They're all dropping their nets at the same time in hopes of preventing Manafort from wriggling free. This was apparent to Jed even in the early days of Manafort's criminal charges, when that first indictment came down.
0: So what happened initially was when Manafort was indicted in the fall of 2017, several commentators said, oh, isn't it interesting that Manafort is being indicted on a narrow set of charges? But also at this time, there were also concerns about whether Trump was going to fire Mueller, it turns out behind the scenes he actually did try and fire Mueller. And people were also concerned that, um, given these federal indictments, a presidential pardon could wipe out these prosecutions with a preemptive pardon. That, that can happen. And so when I saw this mix of things happening, I realized from the, the Manafort indictment by Mueller's team that it seemed like they were picking certain charges— that would, first of all, be the, the kinds of charges that only a federal prosecutor could bring, but not but a state prosecutor couldn't bring them.
1: Jed thinks Mueller did this to ensure even if he got fired and even if Trump pardoned his friends, guys like Manafort would still face justice because the president can pardon federal crimes, but not state ones.
0: Because there's so much reporting of Trump dangling pardons, it would be important to make sure these charges were brought to both discourage that from happening and also make sure if a pardon did happen, that state officials would be ready to make sure that Manafort went from federal custody into the state system. So it looked to me like there was a deliberate strategy to keep state prosecutors in the mix.
1: You're laying out this really careful strategy on Mueller's part, that he's really thinking of all the angles and sort of anticipating what might happen next. I'm wondering if there are any risks, though, of outsourcing some of this prosecution to sort of the local teams.
0: Well, there is some risk in that he decentralizes control and he's got to trust them not to leak. And he's got to trust that they're actually going to follow through and handle it well. But I have to be honest, I am worried.
1: Throughout this whole process, it seemed to Jed like these prosecutors were going out of their way to avoid double jeopardy that is, charging Trump associates with the same crime in both state and federal court. But he looks at this latest indictment, and he sees trouble.
0: I basically sat down for a couple of hours matching up the New York indictment from Wednesday with the federal indictment and, and what uh, Manafort was convicted of in its earlier federal trial. And it started to become clear that between nine, but probably 12 of the 16 counts in the Manhattan DA's indictment either double up or significantly overlap with convictions in federal court. That probably is a no-go. That's probably not kosher, uh, according to New York law.
1: Well, so here's what I'm hearing you say, which is, You called this a while back that Robert Mueller came up with a strategy. It was kind of genius to have different jurisdictions filing different charges against all of these people he was investigating. But it seems like you're saying that the Manhattan D.A. may have dropped the ball here.
0: The, The Manhattan D.A. Cyrus Vance certainly appears to have dropped the ball in having a year to make sure that there was a backup plan. And when he finally unveiled that backup plan on Wednesday the document that he issued to the public raised too many questions that are still unresolved 24 hours later. That's a bad opening move, right? I mean, he may have a good argument for why this isn't double jeopardy based upon some factual or legal argument. But let me say that this indictment is not well written to resolve those concerns. Let me say something else about a concern about uh, Manhattan DA Vance. Um, There is ample reporting that Vance was, uh, his office was investigating a a real estate fraud by Ivanka Trump and Don Jr., and they had in hand a set of emails and documents that basically made a very strong case of a felony real estate fraud against them that was maybe a, a decade ago. And reporting suggests that the Manhattan DA Cyrus Vance played a role in making sure that his prosecutors did not bring this prosecution that they were building and ready to go with that coincided with Trump's lawyer, Mark Kasowitz, making a huge campaign donation to the Cyrus Vance campaign. But Cyrus Vance has an opportunity now to redeem himself. I don't think that the indictment from Wednesday gives people confidence that he's up to this task.
1: Can I interrupt you, though? Because when I asked you before, I said... I said, is there a risk to outsourcing this to these individual prosecutors at the local level? (laughs) This seems like the risk. Uh,
0: Well, uh, let me say this. I think we have a couple of actors. Uh, I'll I'll put on one side uh, Trump and Manafort. Um, I would say that there are relevant questions to be asking about Manhattan DA Vance uh, based upon the, the reported record. But Setting those to one side, I think to the other side, we have a large number. We have, first of all, Mueller and his whole team of public servants. And I think there is some sufficient reporting about how Mueller is partnering up with and sharing his investigation with the Southern District of New York and the Eastern District of New York. This is really the story. I mean, so far, I'd actually say that this is really an optimistic story, that so many different aspects of the rule of law and public servants have been doing their job and things are on track to uphold the rule of law. Even with a handful of bad actors, the corruption's gotten smoked out, and the system so far is moving in the right direction. We haven't, it hasn't been resolved yet. It's a dramatic story, but the prosecutors have been holding firm and doing their job.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Okay, great, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time.
1: Jed Sugarman is a professor at Fordham Law. All right, that's the show. Before we go, I have an invitation for you because Slate Plus is celebrating its fifth anniversary this year, and we are throwing parties all across the country just for our members. So if you've ever thought of joining us because you get ad-free podcasts and all sorts of other great benefits, now's the time to do it. All these parties, they are April 3rd in DC, Brooklyn, San Francisco. So go to slate.com slash live for tickets and more information. All right, everyone, I'm gonna talk to you Monday.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
1: Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?